Please turn to Esther chapter 2. The segment we're looking at today is chapter 2, verse 19 through the end of chapter 3. As you're finding that text, there once was a young man who had grown up in, in serious poverty. As he came into adulthood, he decided that he was going to go into business as a grocer. He didn't want to live the life of poverty that he had experienced as a child. So his dream was to have the best grocery store in his town, which was called New Salem. He didn't have the money to get the business started, and so uh, he had to go deeply into debt to get the store off the ground. So his grocery store was started in the little town of New Salem, but it wasn't successful. It couldn't compete with the larger store in town, and soon the business completely failed. And this man found himself depressed and in debt that took over a decade to pay off. His dream had been lost, and unbeknownst to him at the time, that failure was a good thing. It was good for him, and it was good for many, many other people. You see, this man was not providentially destined by God to become one of the greatest grocers of all time, but one of the greatest presidents of all time. His name, Abraham Lincoln. After his failure at business, Lincoln pursued a career in law and then politics, which would eventually lead him to the White House. You may not know this, but, but Lincoln was an avid Shakespeare reader, and his favorite quote was a line from Hamlet that says this, quote, There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we may, end quote. He came to believe this deeply about his own life, that there was a divinity that was shaping everything. But he also began to believe it about the nation that he would eventually lead. During the final years of his life, President Lincoln, under the discipleship of Presbyterian pastor Phineas Gurley, came to a deep understanding of and belief in the providence of God. The book we are currently studying, Esther, is designed to stir up that same deep understanding of and belief in the providence of God. Yet this book that we've been looking at never once mentions the name of God. But that's the beauty of it. The hidden hand of God can be clearly seen. The quiet whispers of God can be clearly heard in the book. In chapter 1, we saw that God was working behind the scenes as King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, threw a big party to make much of himself and, and much of all of his accomplishments but then he got very angry. He got furious when his queen, Vashti, uh, wouldn't come and be paraded before all of his drunken friends like a trophy. And so she wouldn't come. And, and so his friends uh, counseled him as he was angry that he needed to replace the queen and, and banish Vashti from the kingdom. And so he does this. And unbeknownst to him, in the midst of all of this and all these circumstances, God was at work to supply a new queen so in chapter 1, we saw that God's providence supersedes man's power. God's providence superintends man's plans. And most importantly, God's providence safeguards God's people. Then last week, in the first part of chapter 2, we saw that the king, a few years later, uh, was regretting his rash decision, his rash actions when he had gotten rid of the queen. So his advisors, again, gave him some advice. And this time it was that he should throw a, a perverse beauty contest where he would sleep with the most beautiful virgins of the land in order to choose the one he liked the most. And at that point, we meet Esther. 
a beautiful young orphan Jewess who was being taken care of by her cousin Mordecai. She would be one of the young virgins taken to the king. Strangely to us, though, Esther nor Mordecai try to run from the king's immoral edict. Instead, the text seems to indicate that Mordecai and Esther not only submitted to it, but they even tried to do what they could to win the contest. Most notably, they hid their Jewishness. And Esther seemingly compromised her faith by partaking of the Persian foods, and worse, far worse, by sleeping with and eventually marrying an uncircumcised pagan Gentile, something God's law clearly forbade. And so in all of this, we saw last week that God was at work in the midst of regretful consequences. He was at work in the midst of trying circumstances. And we even saw that God is at work in the midst of fleshly compromises, such as his providence. And so we come to today's text where we'll see a major shift in the fortunes of Esther and Mordecai. Up to this point, it's gone pretty well. Esther had become the most powerful woman in Persia. But the same sovereign God who providentially ordained the difficulties that allowed our 16th president to become the man and the leader that he was, was also about to turn the lives of Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews in the kingdom upside down. So please stand with me now as we read Esther chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 19 and read all the way through the end of chapter 3. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of reading what we believe is the infallible and errant word of God. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hashuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. 
If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to all the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this next portion of Esther, Lord, help us to see your providential hand continuing to guide, continuing to work, even in the midst of great evil that is being planned. So Lord, I pray that you would Open up our eyes to see this morning. Open up our ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak this morning. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in the rest of this service and all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as I said earlier, things up to this point have gone pretty good for Esther and Mordecai. We pick up the narrative in verse 19. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time... And this is a bit of a confusing phrase. What's going, what's going on here, this, this, this mention of the virgins being gathered together a second time? It seems to indicate that the, that the king has, has gathered his concubines once again. As I stated last week, most of the women in the harem, most of the women who went through that process that we mentioned last week, would never see the king again. But he would from time to time summon the women, summon some of the women from his, his, his great harem of concubines to please his own lustful purposes. You may be wondering, well, isn't the king at this point in love with Esther? Isn't he dedicated to Esther? I mean, we read in the text last week that the king loved her more than all the others. Well, I do believe that King Ahasuerus does have a special and emotional attachment to Esther. I think we'll see that surface later on. But he's still a pagan, fleshly, ancient Persian king who did what pagan, fleshly, ancient Persian kings did. And so he gathers all of his concubines again. This may explain why in chapter 4, verse 11, that we'll look at next week, this may explain why Esther has not been in the presence of the king for more than a month, or for about a month. So it was during this time that the incidents of today's passage, today's text, takes place. We read next that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, this is not a comment about Mordecai's posture. Sitting at the gate is a reference to him having a position of power in the king's court. Interestingly enough, a, a tablet discovered in Persia in 1904 mentions a name, uh, like a name Mordecai, Marduka, really, in, as being an official in King Xerxes' court. So we have archaeological evidence that supports that Mordecai was indeed 
part of Xerxes' uh, official court. The gate was the place where all legal, civil, and ceremonial transactions took place. Archaeology has shown to us that the gate at Susa was a large building that had a large hall for, for large meetings and had smaller rooms for other types of meetings and transactions. Now, there is no indication that prior to Esther's ascension to the throne that Mordecai was in any way a royal official. More likely than not, he was appointed to the position as a favor to Esther. For it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for someone of power to appoint relatives or friends into positions of prominence. So it seems that Esther's rise benefited Mordecai as well. And so as I said, things are going well for them at this point. Perhaps it's for this reason that Esther and Mordecai have continued to conceal their Jewishness. Verse 20. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So just as in back in verse 10, Mordecai has intentionally hidden their race and their beliefs, and compliant Esther has gone along with the ruse. I think the author is bringing this up again at this point to show us how far the concealment had gotten them. Matter of fact, they had had to keep this concealed for quite a while. We remember back in verse 16, if you look back at verse 16, that Esther became queen in the seventh year of King Ahasuerus' reign. But the events of today's narrative, if you look down at chapter 3, verse 7, take place in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus' reign. So five years have elapsed. Five years of hiding their Jewishness. The reader is left to wonder... During those years, what did they eat? During those years, did they observe the Sabbath? Uh, Did they ever pray to Yahweh? Did they ever worship Yahweh in any way, form, or fashion? But as we're about to see, as much as they have tried to conceal and hide who they are, the truth is about to come out in the open. But for now, at least from an earthly perspective... Things are going well for Esther and Mordecai, and it seems that things are going to get even better when Mordecai heroically thwarts an assassination plot. Verse 21, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, Bigthan and Teresh, and by the way, just so you know that Persian kings weren't only hard on young ladies, Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that King Xerxes would take 500 young men every year and make them eunuchs. So it's a, it was a, King Xerxes was a pretty horrible guy. And so two of the eunuchs at the, at the king's gate have this plan. Uh, they were guarding the threshold, it says, meaning they were the last line of defense. To, to give it an equivalency in our culture, it'd be like they were the secret servicemen. They were the ones closest to the king. They were at the door. And so they have this plot to, um, to take care of the king. They had become angry. They had sought to lay hands on him. Lay hands. Not laying hands in prayer. Laying hands in killing, all right? They want to get rid of the king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, verse 22, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Now that's important, meaning that she had, she had made sure the king was aware of who discovered the plot and who it was that was telling her these things. And the purpose of telling the king this was so that he would be awarded, rewarded, I should say. Verse 23 says, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we see that Mordecai, okay, like all of us in here, is a bit of a mixed bag, isn't he? So far we haven't been too impressed with his character, 
But in this incident, we see some good things emerging. We see loyalty and bravery, and soon we'll see even greater loyalty and even greater bravery. It seems that Mordecai, as an official of the king, is doing his job well. He is blessing the king, and therefore he is blessing his adopted country in the process. He is carrying out God's command in Jeremiah 29. And this is God's command through the prophet Jeremiah, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So like like Mordecai, we too are exiles in this world, and we are to live in such a way that we serve others and we seek the good of society, and we even serve our government well. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now Mordecai, despite some of his ethical compromises that we've seen leading up to this, is carrying out his job as a royal official in an honoring and godly way. Yet despite his loyalty and despite his bravery, his deed goes unrewarded. Normally a king would immediately and in grand fashion honor a man who so showed such devotion. But after the situation is thoroughly investigated and the perpetrators are justly dealt with, we read of no reward for Mordecai, not even an acknowledgement of his heroic service. Matter of fact, in the very spot that you'd expect to read of Mordecai's reward, we read this, verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. And we're left saying, what? That's not the right name. It should be Mordecai. It should be Mordecai that's promoted. And so we're, we're left surprised. The readers are, are introduced to a new character at this point, someone named Haman. And so our first point today is simply this. God is the sovereign champion of his people in an unfair and unjust world. God is the sovereign champion of his people in an unfair and an unjust world. So instead of Mordecai getting his just reward, we have Haman. Now, we need to understand that the overlooking of Mordecai in man's mind is merely an unjust oversight. But as we'll see, in God's mind, it was no fluke. Everything, including the failure to reward Mordecai, is going according to God's plan. God purposed and ordained that Mordecai's deed go overlooked. Why? So that he could continue to work all things together for the good of Mordecai and Esther and the people, God's people. And so you know the story. You'll know how you've read Esther. You know how the story, how this oversight will come into play later. But I want you to imagine for yourselves if you, if you were the first readers of this and you get to this point, you're frustrated that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded. But for now, we have to see this must have been difficult to Mordecai. When he was conniving and scheming, he prospered. But now that he's doing what is right and just, nothing comes of it. And what's more, the man who is promoted instead of him, as we'll soon find out, is an enemy of the Jewish people and, a, and the murderous villain of this whole story. But that's how life often goes, isn't it? In this fallen, unjust world, so often unrighteousness is rewarded while righteousness is ignored. But as God's people, we must know that God is sovereign over all such unfairness and injustice. God is sovereign over the fact that Oftentimes, the wicked do succeed, and the godly do suffer. Jeremiah 12, 1, 
prophet Jeremiah says this, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. God's people have always been perplexed by the fact that the the wicked seem to prosper. That was what the Psalm 73 that Dima read earlier was all about. That whole psalm is dedicated to the conundrum that God allows the wicked, at least on the surface, to succeed, but it's only for a season. The wicked may succeed now. They may get the promotion. They may accumulate the wealth. They may be noticed and honored. They may be called good. They may be remembered in man's record books, but they will not ultimately succeed. Psalm 37.1 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. As God's people, we are not to focus on fairness, but on faithfulness. We are not to pursue Rightness, in the sense that we're trying to make things right for us, but righteousness. We are never promised a fair shake in this fallen world. What we are told to do is to put our hope in God, put our faith in God to fix our eyes on heavenly things. And he will be our champion. He will bring us through this unjust world and into his presence where there is no more unfairness, where justice rules. But in the meantime, we rest and we trust And there's no guarantee that things won't get worse. Matter of fact, that's what we see for Esther and Mordecai. Things go from bad to worse, a lot worse. So we see Ahasuerus, he promotes Haman in chapter 3, verse 1. The second half of verse 1, it says that he set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, why did Mordecai do this? Why was he unwilling to bow down and pay homage to uh, this official, to Haman? Well, some commentators have a lot of different thoughts on this. Some think it was because he was jealous. He didn't get the promotion, so he's just flat out jealous. So I'm not going to bow to this dude. He got the promotion I deserve. I guess that could be the case, but I don't think that's it. Others argue that Mordecai is trying not to break the first commandment. In other words, he doesn't want to bow down and treat Haman like a god. But the only problem is that we have other texts in the Bible where God's people have no problem prostrating themselves before kings and people of high position. It was was simply a cultural and proper way to show honor. So I don't think that's it. But there is a clue in the text as to exactly why he's not bowing down. If you'll notice, in this Um, book, there are only two lineages mentioned, one being Mordecai's and the second being Haman's. And we read here that Haman was an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now you may be wondering, what is an Agagite? But the Jewish readers who first read this story would have known. An Agagite was an Amalekite. And the Amalekites were the ancient enemies of the Jewish people. They were an exceedingly wicked people. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 18 through 16, we read of the Amalekites attacking God's people, attacking Israel as they're on their way heading to the promised land. And God, in that event, gave them victory over the Amalekites and and even promised God himself made an oath that he would be at war with Amalek, which is the name of, of the king at that time, Amalek, from generation to generation. 
So the animosity goes all the way back to that moment. And so as the people are about to go into the land, Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way and you... and. When you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall, and this is a command from God, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The people of God were to carry out God's righteous judgment against the Amalekites. But... They didn't do it. And as a result, as a result of their disobedience, the Amalekites were continually a thorn in their side all throughout their history. Later, uh, Israel's first king, King Saul, a Benjamite, son of Kish. And remember, as we read earlier, that Mordecai came from this clan of Benjamites. So Saul was told by God to wage war against the Amalekites and thus fulfill what Moses had told Israel to do. And so we read of this in 1 Samuel 15. But Saul, like his forefathers before him, disobeys God. Specifically, he spared the life of the Amalekite king, King Agag, from which we get Agagites. It was Saul's refusal to obey God in this incident that led the throne to being taken away from him. God takes the throne away from Saul at this moment. And if you remember that story, Samuel had Agag brought out, and Agag was all cheerful, thinking that he had been spared death. And Samuel, according to the Bible, took a sword and hacked him to pieces. So that's where the Agagites come from. Descendants of King Agag, the Amalekites. The people that Israel was unwilling to destroy. The Agagites hated God's people and they hated Saul's family. And surely in light of Saul's failure and his subsequent loss of the throne, the Benjamites hated the Agagites. So it's amazing to see God's providence at work. The disobedience of God's people had consequences that played out in Persia hundreds of years later. Yet God is at work crafting their sin for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. So that's the backdrop to this incident. This is why Mordecai refuses to bow. He will not bow to this Agagite, this God-hating man from a God-hating people. Mordecai's pride will not allow him, nor, I think, will his convictions. These wicked people should have been gone off the face of the earth, but here is one ascending to great power in Persia. Verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? The king had commanded them to to bow down to to Haman. Verse 4. And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. So now it seems that Mordecai has finally been willing to reveal his heritage. And the reason he's not willing to bow to this Agagite is that he's a Jew. His Jewishness is the reason. It seems that he has told them the story. He has explained to them why he cannot bow down to that man. Verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now there's a little play on words here. The the word fury is also sometimes translated the word wrath. It is the word wrath in the Hebrew uh, language. It's It's the word chema. And this guy's name is Haman. So this is Haman the wrathful. The enemy of God's people. 
You see, Haman doesn't just have it out for Mordecai. He sees this as an opportunity to get revenge. Verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hasuerus. So remember what I said a couple of weeks ago. There's a bunch of faithful Jews in Judah rebuilding a wall, rebuilding a temple right now. As all this is going on, they have no idea that their very existence, because this decree was to go throughout the entire kingdom, their very existence is at stake in the proceedings of the court back in Persia. So God is providentially protecting his people. So disheartening unfairness is now given way to outright deadly injustice. The lives of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews are now at stake. It may be hard for us to see at this point, but God is at work. God is at work in and through the injustice. And so the next thing I want us to see is that God is the sovereign deliverer of his people from a deadly and diabolical enemy. God is the sovereign deliverer of his people from a deadly and diabolical enemy. Esther chapter 3 verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hashuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now what's happening here in this text is that Haman is casting what is essentially uh, dice. They, they've un, archaeologists have also uncovered what these, these lots were, and basically very similar to our, our dice today. So he's, he's casting these little clay dice to try to determine when he's going to carry out his plan to kill all the Jews. What he's doing here is practicing divination. The dice are called Pur, uh, which is the name of the feast that would come from this whole book, Purim, right? And so that's where the name comes from. The roll of the dice puts the events 11 months off. So he rolls the dice. He chooses the date. It's 11 months off. And so Haman thinks that he has set the fate of the Jews in stone. But the Bible says something about the casting of lots, doesn't it? Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So God is still at work. So Haman comes to the king to sell his plan. And like... Like uh, most politicians, he, he comes with, with some half-truth, some truth, and an outright lie. Not all politicians, all right? Some politicians. And so he comes here in verse 8, and he says, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people. Now, that's, that's the truth. They, they do have different laws. And then he says this, and they don't keep the king's laws. Well, in this particular case, that's a half-truth. Normally they keep the king's laws, but Mordecai had just disobeyed the king's edict to bow down to Haman. And then he says this, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And this is an outright lie. The Jews were contributing members of society, and certainly Mordecai's actions earlier, as he thwarted the plot, had been to the king's profit. So in verse 9, we read Haman saying, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So even back then, money could buy political decisions. So the king took his signet ring and from his hand gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. At this point, the author has given Haman a title, the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of God's people. He is an agent 
of the accuser. That's what he's been doing in this passage. He's been accusing God's people. He is the seed of the serpent. He is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. What we will see is simply the next skirmish in the war that began in Genesis 3, verse 15, as the enemy tries to kill the offspring of God and in doing so kill God's people. Verse 11, And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. Now again, we see how easily manipulated King Xerxes is. And remember, King Xerxes is the most powerful man in the whole world at this time. I think there's a contrast being drawn here. King Xerxes is like putty in the hands of his advisors. It's the third time he's received advice and he just goes along with it. He's like putty in the hands of his advisors. The most powerful man on the earth. But God can't be, his plans can't be thwarted. God is putty in no man's hands. The true king is at work. The true king is doing what he sees fit. Now, this is quite a contrast to the plot that was discovered earlier against the king that was thoroughly investigated and the two conspirators were, were killed only after the investigation. But here, the king takes Haman at his word. And without even blinking, he orders the killing of millions. So the slithering enemy of God's people was ready to strike. His fangs were bared. All seems lost. But there's hidden hope in the very next verse, verse 12. Look at it with me. There's hidden hope in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written. Let me stop right there. Do you see the hope? Anyone in here see the hope? Probably not. But the Jews reading this the first time would have seen the hope. Here's why. The clue is taken from the date that the proclamation is made. The 13th day of the first month. Anyone know what date that is? Let's just see. Don't look at your study Bible footnotes. Anyone know? That is the eve of Passover. That is the eve of Passover. That this edict is going out. The news, once again, God's people are in a foreign land. And they are in danger. But on the eve of Passover, they are being tested. Do we believe? Will we trust? Will we continue to hope in the God who passed over and delivered us from Egypt? Will he once again save us? Will we put our hope in him? And so we read, despite the raging of the enemy, in verse 12, we read that there is hope. Despite the sins of God's own people, from way back when the the Israelites failed to get rid of the Amalekites to the very compromises that Esther and Mordecai were making, despite the sins of God's own people, there's hope. Despite the irrevocable laws of the Medo-Persian Empire, there is hope. As they had shed the blood of a lamb without blemish and spread it over the doorposts of their homes in Egypt... Trusting that God, by the blood of the Lamb, would deliver them. So too, once again, they had to put their hope in God. Now friends, we need to understand that the deliverance that we have, the deliverance God would 
show his people in Esther is not nearly as great as the deliverance we have in Christ. Passover itself simply pointed to a greater deliverance of a more perfect lamb that had to be slaughtered. The lamb of God, the Christ, who likewise on Passover would shed his own blood to once and for all deliver God's people from their enemies. But that deliverance on that cross on a Judean hillside would be a greater deliverance from a greater enemy than Persia. It would be the deliverance from Satan and from sin itself. And so we as believers in Christ who have had his perfect blood applied to the doorpost of our hearts do not live in fear. We know that our God is sovereign. He is our sovereign deliverer from a deadly and diabolical enemy. Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus in his incarnation partook of the same things we partook of. That, quote, through death he might destroy the one who has the enemy of death, who has the power of death, I should say, that is the devil. And so with our enemies already defeated, we can say with the Apostle Paul, Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we rest. We rest in the quiet providence of God. Our world seems like it's upside down again. There are terrorists running amok. There are decisions being made in Washington that make us scratch our head. Everything seems like it's turning on its head. And we can either freak out with the rest of the world or we can rest because we are a different people than the rest of the world. We can rest in the providence of God and people can see in us a hope that isn't offered through any presidential candidate, that isn't offered through any political platform, that isn't offered through any national security defense program. It's only offered in Christ Jesus. And so we rest. We find peace in his sovereignty, knowing that he even folds man's wicked designs and plans into his purpose to deliver us. The most stunning example of this is the text that Todd read earlier. Acts 4, verse 24. Sovereign Lord, this is the disciples praying, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Oh, friends, do not fret when the world treats you unfairly or commits injustices against you. Do not fret when the enemy rages. Our God is sovereign. He used the greatest injustice in the world, which was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, to deliver us. So do not fret. Do not fear. God is working all things together for your good. So let's, let's finish the story, this portion of the story here in Esther. Verse 13. Letters were sent out by couriers. Here's a side note. Persia had the most effective postal system of the ancient world. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. 
and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So, so everything seems to be stacked against God's people. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So there you have it. There's our cliffhanger. Notice the blind and foolish arrogance of Haman and the king. Oh, unbeliever, if you are not, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are still part of Satan's tribe. You are with the king in the story. You are with Haman in the story, sitting and drinking. Oh, unbeliever, if you are here today, don't sit back and take it easy and think that you're all that. While comfort and peace may be your lot now, destruction is right around the corner if you do not first repent and call upon Christ. Plead for his blood to be applied to you, for only through him can you be delivered from death and from destruction that will come on all of God's enemies. Abraham Lincoln, when his dreams were shattered and his career was floundering, he learned to trust in the providence of God. He needed to. Because little did he know at that time, the nation was about to go through its greatest trial in its history. And so in God's providence, he prepared the right man to lead the nation through such a trial. And as that trial was coming to its end, in Lincoln's second inaugural address, shortly before he was assassinated, he wrote and he spoke these words. And by the way, you'd be hard-pressed to ever find this in a political speech these days. Quote, The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe to the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that the American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, by which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offenses came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war be speedily passed away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. And was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said today. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. End quote. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come and we close this time of prayer, close with this time of prayer, this time of singing, Lord, I pray that you would stir up our hearts, stir up our hearts as we enter into, continue to go along into this political season, that you would stir up our hearts to have a supernatural, otherworldly rest. Lord, as the next headline, and we don't know what it's going to be, terrorist attack, a hurricane, we don't know, but as the next headline comes across our computer screens, 
and we're sitting in our cubicle, let our reaction be different than the world's. Let us be people who are at rest. And as we are passed over for the promotion, and as we are passed over for the acknowledgement, let us be a different people because God, you passed over us through the blood of the Lamb. We did not receive the wrath we were due. Instead, it was absorbed by the Lamb of God. So let us be a different people. Lord, the revival of this nation will only happen if the people in the churches are different. So God, we ask you to do whatever you will. And if your will is to bring this country to its knees, so be it. We belong to a different kingdom. But in the meantime, in the midst of our exile, in the midst of our sojourning, let us be a people who demonstrate an otherworldly rest and peace in our God who is providentially at work, albeit very quietly at work, in every single detail of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.